This is The Guardian. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Looking for your next great podcast? We live in unprecedented times. To make sense of it, what if you could learn from some of the most influential people on the planet? The podcast Tools and Weapons is hosted by Microsoft's Vice Chair and President Brad Smith. Every week he has a candid conversation with guests, including Prime Ministers and Pulitzer Prize-winning journalists. The latest episode features Bayer CEO Bill Anderson. Though most of us know Bayer for pharmaceuticals, they're also focused on crop science. They're putting digital tools in the hands of farmers to get the most out of every acre. Listen to Tools and Weapons with Brad Smith wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, Madeline here. The Science Weekly team are away on their summer holidays. So for the next two weeks, we'll be bringing you a few of our favourite episodes from the year so far. Today we're going back to look at why scientists have turned to protest in the face of the climate crisis, asking... Is it the only rational thing left to do? There were lots of reasons to pick this particular episode, but with the extreme weather we've seen this summer, from the heatwaves and droughts in Europe to floods in Australia and Uganda, all happening with just a rise of one degree Celsius in the planet's average temperature, it felt important to hear again why scientists are undertaking civil disobedience to try and get fossil fuel companies, governments and all of us to act as soon as possible. I really hope you enjoyed the episode. Last Monday, the most recent report from the International Panel on Climate Change was published. Climate scientists warn that we are already perilously close to tipping points that could lead to cascading and irreversible climate impacts. It gave the world 30 months. Yes, that's 30 months for us to get global greenhouse gases falling if we want to avoid the worst of the climate crisis. That narrow window for action we always talk about, well, it's almost up. And some scientists are feeling like writing reports and publishing papers just isn't enough anymore. So instead, they're taking to the streets. I think scientists need to be out here with our children, with our indigenous, with our old and our young. Good morning. We are Scientist Rebellion. Siamo il gruppo scienziati per la ribellione climatica. Last week saw hundreds of scientists around the world blockading government buildings, doing teach-ins and protesting. Including on Wednesday in London, 
when I joined a group headed to the headquarters of fossil fuel company Shell. Academic posters were plastered up on the windows, water balloons full of black paint were thrown, and a banner stretched across the entrance reading Scientists' Rebellion. This kind of civil disobedience probably isn't what you'd expect a group of scientists to be doing on a Wednesday morning. So why are more and more environmentalists, climate and data scientists, biologists and even astrophysicists leaving their desks and laboratories behind to protest? Scientists have been putting out these increasingly dire warnings about where things are heading and we're not seeing action at the scale that's needed. Otherwise, there is no future for our children, for my grandchildren and everybody else's grandchildren too. Being here today, it's surprising I notice how calm I feel. I feel like I'm actually doing something that can make a difference. I can't just sit in the lab anymore and observe the slow collapse of the world. I have to try to get those messages out there um, in other ways because it's just one of these ways works. It It will be worth it. From The Guardian, I'm Madeleine Findlay, and this is Science Weekly. One of the protesters I spoke to at Shell HQ was Charlie Gardner, a conservation scientist at the University of Kent and environmental activist. Afterwards, I gave him a call to find out what's prompted so many scientists to go out and protest starting with the most recent IPCC report. There have been two recent reports from the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. In late February, there was a report about adaptation, warning us what we need to do as a global society to survive the changes that are coming. Then last week, part three of the IPCC report came out, and this was focused on mitigation. So this tells us what we have to do to avoid the worst of climate change. And really here, the message was very, very stark indeed. We need to rapidly decarbonise our entire societies and our economies as soon as we can. Simultaneously, we need to be conserving and restoring nature because nature acts as a vital carbon sink. So really, the message from these IPCC reports is act now. This is very, very urgent indeed. You said it was very stark, and I feel like Every time we talk about the next IPCC report, I say it's the scariest yet. And this one, although it was about mitigation and it was about what actions we could take, it was quite scary in the sense that we really don't have any time, like you said. When you hear this kind of news, it is hard to comprehend. Do you think it's difficult to take in what it really means? I do, yes. It's almost impossible to really imagine the end of the world. In our industrialised societies, we've been brought up with this deep faith in this idea of progress, that human beings and human society has the power to absolutely shape the world around us. Now, what climate change does is it shatters this illusion of control. And that's very, very hard to grasp. Perhaps another component of that is that for a long time, we've been told that 
these will be problems for the future. What we're seeing now is that it's not a problem for the future. This is really an issue that is affecting people around the world now, and it has been for a long time. And that awareness is, of course, very pertinent to scientists who are seeing the data, which is why some scientists were at Shell's London headquarters last week where we met. And I'd like to know why you decided to go along to that protest. What was your motivation for being there? Yeah, I've been an environmentalist all my life. And I thought the best way for me to try and save the natural world was to become a scientist. I thought if we have global problems, then clearly the most important thing to do is collect information so we can understand those problems better. Once we understand them, we can generate solutions. Unfortunately, it turns out that that way of thinking was quite naive because we have done everything that society expects scientists to do. We have provided the information and we know what we need to do precisely to avoid climate change. But it's not happening because it turns out that the problem isn't due to a lack of information. It's due to influence and power. So I've realised over recent years that simply doing science isn't enough. And I just don't know any other way to persuade people of just how deadly serious this is than to put myself at risk of arrest. really reflects something that Antonio Gutierrez, the Secretary General of the UN, said of the most recent IPCC report that it was a litany of broken climate promises. Some government and business leaders are saying one thing but doing another. They are lying. It is a file of shame, cataloguing the empty pledges that put us firmly on track towards an unlivable world. So what should the role of the climate and environment scientists be now? And is it more activist and more political? Many of us became researchers, became academics out of some desire to make the world a better place. It's now clear that providing information isn't sufficient to do that. We need to become engaged. We need to become more influential and more powerful. And that means engaging in political processes. Now, one of the um, things that holds scientists back, I think, is that there's this social norm in academia, this idea that we are supposed to be neutral, value-free purveyors of information, I find it quite strange because I'm a conservation scientist and ours is an explicitly value-driven discipline. We see nature as good and we exist to try to conserve it. So to me, the, the move from advocacy to activism isn't a change in our neutrality at all. It's just an escalation of tactics. All of this is very emotional. And one thing that I noticed at the protest was the expression of emotion from the scientists. And normally it's something that science seems to have a bit of an aversion to. But do you think that that's changing? 
I do. And I think it's very important that scientists are starting to express how they feel about these things. We've been very dispassionate for a long time. And actually, that's been a problem when it comes to effectively communicating the crises we're in. Um, Greta Thunberg is, is a wonderful example of that. We've been relying on scientists to communicate for decades. But along comes one young woman and starts communicating in emotive language. And it really cuts through. People start to get it. So it's really important that scientists communicate how we feel or at very least stop hiding it because this affects all of us and it affects all of us in very difficult ways. Charlie, at the moment, there are so many things going on in the world. There are so many immediate issues facing us. And a lot of people don't like what Extinction Rebellion do. They don't like the tactics and they don't necessarily agree with civil disobedience and that kind of action. And I wonder what your thoughts are on it being a reasonable course and whether there are other things that could be done. Well, history shows that the most effective way to catalyze change is civil disobedience, and that's why we do it. Of course, it's disruptive. Yes, it does cause trouble for some people, and we're very uh, apologetic for that. Now, today, we look back at Martin Luther King and Emmeline Pankhurst and Rosa Parks as heroes. But of course, they weren't seen that way at the time. They were deeply unpopular because they were being disruptive just as Extinction Rebellion are being disruptive now. On a personal level, are there difficulties in sticking your head above the parapet and doing this kind of action? There are difficult things about it. I've had concerns about how my colleagues would feel about it. I've had concerns about my professional reputation. And of course, I'm terrified of being arrested by the police. I don't want to spend a night in jail and I don't want to have a, a criminal record. But I just feel a compulsion. And so long as there are people taking action that looks like it might be effective, then I just need to join them. Because if I don't, and if we, we all don't, then we will lose everything. And losing everything, that now or never that we've heard from the IPCC report, it is scary it's kind of terrifying but also from what you've said one of the reasons that you're taking action is because there is that little bit of hope left to try and make things better but where do you think that line is between giving people hope but also waking us up to the precipice of disaster that we're all standing on at the moment i think hope is a very dangerous emotion it's quite connected to, to faith. And there's this idea that everything will be all right. And I think that 
idea helps keep a lot of us passive, and it's very, very dangerous. We should be fearful. We shouldn't be panicking, but we should be scared. Since 2018, we have seen the flowering of civil disobedience and civil resistance movements around the world. And this is what gives me hope. Because while we haven't yet been able to turn the tide, while things are still getting worse and we haven't yet slammed on the brakes as we need to, finally now we are seeing a meaningful response from society. And I find that very uplifting. Charlie, thanks so much. Thank you very much for this opportunity to speak to you today. Thanks again to Charlie Gardner. You can find links to our coverage of the IPCC report, as well as to a recent opinion piece by climate scientist Peter Kalmus on why he's protesting and risking arrest, on the podcast webpage at theguardian.com. And that's it for today. The producers were me, Madeline Finlay and Anand Jagatia. The sound design was by Rudy Zagadlo. And the executive producer was Max Sanderson. We'll be back on Thursday. See you then. This is The Guardian. Looking for your next great podcast? We live in unprecedented times. To make sense of it, what if you could learn from some of the most influential people on the planet? The podcast Tools and Weapons is hosted by Microsoft's Vice Chair and President Brad Smith. Every week he has a candid conversation with guests, including Prime Ministers and Pulitzer Prize-winning journalists. The latest episode features Bayer CEO Bill Anderson. Though most of us know Bayer for pharmaceuticals, they're also focused on crop science. They're putting digital tools in the hands of farmers to get the most out of every acre. Listen to Tools and Weapons with Brad Smith wherever you get your podcasts.